Welcome to the Richard Roper Podcast. I am Richard Roper. Thanks to everybody who's been listening and downloading and subscribing. And please tell all your friends at least one freshly baked podcast every week coming at you guys talking about movies and TV and everything that's streaming and all things pop culture. Sometimes we get into a little bit of sports and music as well. And on this edition of the Richard Roper Show, I got a question for you. Where do you keep your trophies? your award, your certificates, your special achievement medals, whatever you've received. I, I would imagine that just about anybody within the sound of my voice in this podcast, whether you're here in the States or abroad or somewhere else, wherever that may be on a space station, everybody gets an award at some point, right? Uh, and I know there's a lot of nonsense out there about participation trophies and people getting too many awards, but you know, it's kind of nice to be recognized, right? For whatever your specialty may be. Maybe you're like J.D. Harmeyer, the famous spelling champion who still has his uh, spelling trophy. Howard Stern fans will know what I'm talking about there. Uh, maybe it's something from your, your career in sports or in business or college, whatever the case may be. Uh, we're going to talk about should you display your stuff do you display your stuff? What do I do with my stuff? I'm going to talk about that. And this the, the impetus for this was I read this fascinating piece uh, in Entertainment Weekly where a bunch of Oscar winners talked about where they keep their Academy Awards. Uh, we're also going to have new reviews on the podcast this week, all kinds of new stuff uh, coming to theaters and streaming. But before we get into all of that, here's a reminder. The Richard Roper Show is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. The digital landscape is changing rapidly, and to compete in today's online business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, web development, e-commerce, mobile apps, and digital marketing to drive your overall business's success because they believe that today's online world is your online opportunity. Thanks to all my friends at AmericanEagle.com. You guys are the best. So before we get into the, uh, the whole trophy awards discussion, a little bit of news that broke uh, the day where I'm recording this. Of course, it's always a couple of days, sometimes a couple of hours, depending if it's breaking news. But anyway, recent news, courtesy, I believe, uh, Bloomberg broke the story. We like to give credit where credit is due on the Richard Roper Show. So Bloomberg broke the story telling us that Apple is going to invest at least a billion dollars in movies to open in theaters. Apple TV is reportedly looking to make more original films and also partner with other studios to distribute them with extended theatrical runs. Of course, uh, Coda was originally released in theaters and then re-released to celebrate uh, winning an Oscar for Best Picture. Up until now, Apple TV Plus films have had just limited runs in theaters, or screened in a few sites that is so it's eligible for awards so where i'm at in chicago and some of the other bigger markets obviously uh, new york and la they'll screen the film but then it's available on apple tv plus but they're aiming to spend about a billion dollars every year on big time blockbuster movies now that billion dollars will include production budget cost the release of films in in thousands of theaters and you know you partner up with the distribution company, there'd be marketing, et cetera, et cetera. But you can still, you know, a lot of movies cost a lot of money. Of course, you know, we know the superhero movies, the budget can be $200 million. That's only five movies, but you, a lot of movies can be made for 30 or $40 million still. And I hope that Apple original films will do a lot of those types of movies like Coda. It'd be great if they do some big, you know, action movies as well. But those are the films that get made the fast and furious franchises and things like that. 
but I'd love to see them really get into, you know, solid uh, adult. And when I say adult, I don't mean, you know, adult. I mean, you know, for grownups, if you will, movies that are about script and storyline and acting. Uh, there's still a lot of room for great films like that. So I think this is fantastic news. So applause to Apple for doing that. We'll see how it all pans out. Okay, I mentioned this uh, article in Entertainment Weekly about where Academy Award winners keep their Oscars. This is a fascinating piece by uh, Joey Nolfi. Congratulations to Joey. This was uh, this came out right around the time of the Oscars, but it's been updated. And of course, after the Academy Awards, you always see you know these photos of this is a, a time honored tradition going all the way back. I think to the 30s and 40s and 50s. It would be Life Magazine. You know, so you wouldn't see the photos maybe for a month or so, but eventually you'd see these pictures of the winners usually like at the beverly hilton or the hollywood roosevelt or some famed hotel near where the oscars were and they'd have all, all the newspapers laid out talking about their oscar win and the coffee and champagne and orange juice and whatever the case may be and of course their oscar right there on the table and then we'd maybe sometimes see some articles about well, what do you do at the academy award after that uh, you know, the common answer that so many actors have given over the years is, well, I keep it in my bathroom. And I, I have a friend who's a, in the music business and has won a lot of the big time awards, including uh, Grammys and things like that, American Music Awards. And he keeps them in his bathroom. But, you know, here's the thing about the bathroom deal. It's not as humble and modest as it sounds, because, first of all, we're talking about people with spectacular bathrooms, usually. And it's one thing if they keep it in their private bathroom off the master bedroom, but if it's in one of the primary guest bathrooms in the main foyer, if you will, it's a great way to show off the Oscar while still seeming humble. And then when people come to your house, it actually gives them an opportunity to kind of hold it up and have fun with it without seeming like they're gawking. Because if it's out there on a mantle and they go, oh, can I see your Oscar? Then it becomes about the Oscar. So I love the bathroom thing. Anyway, let's go through some of the uh, answers that uh, Oscar winners gave to uh, Joey Nolfi. And you can get find this story on uh, entertainmentweekly.com because it's kind of cool because uh, the photos that accompany this piece were taken by the winners of the Oscars. So they're, they're just little snapshots they took with their phones of their Oscars. So kind of a fun behind-the-scenes glimpse. Uh, Ruthie Carter, who has won uh, Best Costume Design, she also has won uh, since then. She's got two now. Uh, she has it in her living and sharing space. And it's where she says, it's where I got my favorite African artifacts, my artwork, uh, a lot of cool stuff. And there it is. So it's right there when you walk in. Melissa Leo, she won Best Supporting Actress for The Fighter in 2010. She's got it in a cupboard in her bedroom, she says. And it's with her their pals, Emmy and the SAG actor. Uh, so that's kind of neat. It's kind of in a curio cabinet. Adrian Brody keeps it on a mantle. Catherine Zeta-Jones has it. Uh, in her office at home with some other, you know, awards and things on display. So kind of a home office. A lot of actors do that because, you know, or writers or editors, whatever the case may be. If you've got it in your either your office at a studio or someplace or your home office, kind of a reminder of uh, rewards for all the hard work and, and reaping the rewards of that, the benefits of that. F. Murray Abraham, the great F. Murray Abraham, who won back in 85 for Amadeus, uh, he has it, he calls it cause, he gave it a name, and it overlooks his uh, staircase. But every time he does a stage play, he brings it with him, and he figures out a way to get it on stage, usually dressed up or something, so people don't notice that it's an Oscar. So he brings it with him everywhere he goes. Let's see, who else? Uh, some of them, they, they like to dress up stuff. Uh, Melissa Etheridge, who won for a song from An Inconvenient Truth in 2007, Best Original Song. She's got it alongside of... Uh, it's kind of funny. She's got her Grammys 
her wife's Golden Globe. Also says she's got, I got my first place softball trophy and my best supporting actress award from high school and a harmonica that Bruce Springsteen gave her for her birthday. Well, we all have our harmonica from the boss on display, right? Uh, Francis Ford Coppola has it at, one of, at his vineyard. He's got multiple Oscars and Golden Globes and other prestigious awards, and they're all on dis- in a display case in his vineyard. Let's see. Ellen Burstyn's got him in, a, in an office with a bunch of other uh, uh, trophies and, and awards. So a lot of them keep him in the home office, uh, in the bathrooms. There's another article that uh, in WSJ magazine, Kate Winslet talks about how she keeps it in her bathroom. And the whole point is for everybody to pick it up and go give their own little speech. And then they they come out kind of looking embarrassed, but she knows what they're doing inside there. And that's kind of fun. Kevin Costner had it in an underwear drawer in his house for a long time. But then he moved his, uh, his Oscars to his screening room uh in his home next to posters of movies that influenced him and he said that's perfect because it you know you have to see a movie to see the oscars uh some awards uh winners have given them to managers jamie fox gave his to his manager he he, he didn't want to have it in front of him all the time so he would think he was so great emma stone gave it to her mom this is probably my favorite my, rosamund pike uh the actress who has a number of awards uh she buries them in her garden in london because she's it's just how Rosamond is, I guess. And I, I love that. So she buries them with a little bit of the top peeking out, like the golden head of various statues or whatever, but then completely buries them. And, and her idea is that long after she's gone and maybe three or four people move into the home in London that was once occupied by Rosamond Pike and maybe gets to the point where they don't know that a prestigious, famed, esteemed actor once lived there. And one day they'll be digging in the garden and they'll find these awards like that. It's a little batshit crazy. Um, so what about you? Where do you keep your stuff? Um, back in the days when I was doing uh, terrestrial radio, I'd have you give me a call right now at uh, 591 blah, 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 the number. But um, you can always reach me at my email, rroper, all lowercase, R-R-O-E-P-E-R, at suntimes.com, rroper at suntimes.com. Or you can hit me up on Twitter um, at Richard E. Roper, at Richard E. Roper. I'm just kind of curious as to what you guys do with with various awards you've won. I kind of have mixed feelings about it. I'm not going to pretend that it wasn't like a really cool moment for me. Listen, going back to making Little League All-Star teams and stuff, I don't have any, any sports trophies. My sports career uh, ended. You know how people like to talk about how uh, they would have made it into the pros as a pro baseball player or a, a hoopster. Uh, if it wasn't for that time, they blew out their knee. Uh, I played baseball, football, baseball was my best sport. And I always tell people that I was held back um, by the fact that about 20,000 other guys were bigger, faster, stronger, better hitters, better fielders. If it wasn't for that, I totally would have made the pros all politics, man. But I've been lucky in my, in my career as a writer and broadcaster and, whatever else I'm doing here to win some awards, including some Emmys actually in news commentary. And when I was doing more news type stuff back in the day and some writing awards, et cetera, I have them here in my home office where I'm doing the podcast, but I have them on a a low shelf kind of tucked away. Cause listen, I am proud of the stuff I've won. Don't have this false humility, but I also, I've been to friends houses who work in TV and again, in, in other businesses and, Sometimes they got them in their living room, you know, different awards or mementos of their career. I do do a lot more work from my home office than I used to. There were many, many years when I had offices at radio stations or at Chicago Sun-Times newspaper. 
it's not just the pandemic, but that really kind of solidified how much easier it is to work from home. And you can do things from home. Uh, we're going to put a little video from the podcast from time to time on my YouTube channel, which is also just under my name, Richard Roper. And you'll see, you know, I've got a, I've got a setup here. I've got a nice sure microphone and I can, I can do the podcast. And then the, my buddy, Brian, my producer over at American Eagle.com puts it all together and drops in the clips and everything. So, you know, and I've done tons of TV hits right here from home. I can write from home. If I don't see a film in theaters, although I'm mostly, I'm now seeing films in theaters, I can get a link. I get advanced copies of all these TV shows that we talk about on the podcast. That's, you know, and they send them to me and I can watch them in my, in my living room or elsewhere in the house. And when I had an office, I used to have that stuff kind of on display in my office. Cause it was kind of cool. People would come by. Oh, wow. I didn't even know you wanted this. Good for you. Chumley. Um, so like I said, I have them in a corner. I brought, I'm going to hold this up to the microphone. That's you can tell I'm off mic right now and see if I hold this up to the microphone, you can see it. Hey, it's an Emmy. Uh, so I have them in a, in a corner of, of the home office. I have, you can actually, you can see on YouTube, my background here where I have stuff up, but again, you know, I'll be honest with you guys. I put a lot of this stuff up because of the zoom era and I wanted to have different kind of movie and TV type, uh, memorabilia. If I wouldn't necessarily have all this stuff up, some of it, I really do. I really do treasure though. I mean, I've got copies of my books uh, that I've written. I always have had copies of my books on display, at least at home somewhere, because as a kid who growing up just read everything I could get my hands on, I was at the Dalton Public Library every week, checking out everything from books about the news and movie business to, you know, works of fiction. It was a, it was a great thing and it still is. I mean, I know People don't go to the physical library as much, although a lot of them are still thriving. But it's the one thing you can do, to, you know, no matter your state in life, your income, whether you're privileged or not, is read. And, uh, you know, the, the first time I got a physical book published and it was put on shelves in libraries and bookstores it was probably my most, you know, exciting moment ever in my career. So I, I keep copies of my books on shelves. Uh, I've got a signed poster that a friend gave me, which is an amazing birthday gift. It's everybody, just about everybody who was in Pulp Fiction, including uh, the director, Quentin Tarantino, and they all signed it. And I, I, I do have that poster in my home office. It has traveled with me from home to home and then a few other things. There's a lot of stuff I have in storage. I'm not a big signed memorabilia collector, although I've been lucky that people send me a lot of stuff and they have through the years. And I I have a few uh, a few cool things, some handwritten notes from people, but some of that I feel kind of private. You know, they if if an actor or filmmaker writes you a personal note, you know, on stationery, it's nice to keep, but not necessarily something I need to to share with the world. And nowadays, of course, you just get DMs or emails. It's it's still really cool to hear from a filmmaker or an actor or anybody who's work, you know, you've reviewed and they they tell you how much they admire your work and how much the review meant. But what are you going to do? Print out the DM? <laughs> and frame it uh but i don't think there's anything wrong with any you know regardless of you know whether it's in a, a public speaking event that they gave you an award or a lifetime 20 years in the business or accountant of the year you work hard for that shit you know and you know i, I some people put their college degrees on, on the wall they certainly they do it when you go to the doctor's office you want to see where the hell this doctor went to school again I, I don't. I don't have a class ring. Some people like to do that, but I, I don't think there's anything wrong with celebrating your victories and your achievements because we all have our down moments where we doubt ourselves, where we have uh, imposter syndrome. And sometimes you just look over at something, a photo of a moment or uh, some sort of acrylic thingy that was given to you. And you, you think, you know, some people, 
have appreciated my work. So if you want to hit me up, I'm just kind of curious as to where people keep their stuff. Uh, great piece, by the way, to, to Entertainment Weekly, where the stars talk about where they kept their stuff. Uh, I wanted to talk about one more thing in the movie business before we take a break and then review some new stuff. This was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm calling this up right now and I'm seeing this is uh, Entertainment Weekly, but other people have reported on this as well. And um, this is actually originally uh, in a fan Q&A. And uh, Zachary Levi, who's I think is a lot of fun and very good in the Shazam movies. I, I like the first one a lot. Um, like most critics and a lot of fans, I was not a huge fan of Shazam Fury of the Gods. So, in fact, yeah, it opened to $30 million at the box office. Uh, the first one in 2019 opened to $53 million. So the word of mouth was not good on Shazam Fury of the Gods. I've talked to you guys about this before. From my standpoint, um, when they show me a movie only a couple of days before it opens, that usually tells me there's not a huge amount of confidence in a film. And I think they screened it two nights before it opened uh, for critics in Chicago contrast that with some other films sometimes uh everything everywhere at all at once is a classic example they showed it to me months before it was going to hit theaters because they want they knew that they had something special on their hands and even with tv series i find this there are a lot of whether it's uh, netflix amazon prime prime video apple tv we were just talking about uh disney plus showtime hbo max and there are so many other streaming services paramount plus etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, when they send me a series five or six or sometimes the whole 10 episode run uh, weeks and weeks in advance, it's usually because they think they've got something pretty great on their hands. There are other shows uh, and uh, straight to streaming movies that I get a day or two in advance. And it's not a it's not a hard and fast rule, but it's pretty consistent. You get stuff early and it's stuff they're really excited about. Uh, for example, the fine folks at Showtime reached out to me at least a month before season two of Yellow Jackets uh, was to premiere. We're going to talk about Yellow Jackets season two right after the break, hoping that I would review season two and, you know, offering to send me a half dozen episodes. So with Shazam Fury of the Gods, that wasn't the case. It did not do well. Now, this is kind of interesting. In a fan Q&A, Zach wrote that the biggest issue with Fury of the Gods was actually marketing. He said, you know, yeah, it also doesn't help that there's a lot of Zack Snyder fans who are, eagerly rooting against any DC project that's not a Zack Snyder thing. But what Zach Levi said was, I think the biggest issue we had is marketing. This is a perfect family movie, and yet a lot of families aren't aware of that, which is just a shame. Um, you know, that that may be partially true. I'm not a huge fan of the major stars who are carrying a movie and get almost all the credit when it does well, along with the directors, then kind of turning and and throwing the marketing team under the bus. You know, it is a, it's a film about a family. It's not a family film in the same vein as something like the Incredibles. I mean, there's some pretty gruesome stuff. There's a moment in Shazam, the sequel where a beloved school teacher is compelled to jump off a building, spoiler alert, and lands with a, a splat and is dead, really dead. So I don't know if you want to show that scene to young, young kids, but yeah, it's, it's, I definitely think it's more family friendly than a lot of the superhero movies, but I'm not so sure the marketing would have saved it. It's just, it's not a good film. The writing 
was very underwhelming. It was a plot we've seen in a million other superhero movies. The special effects were fine, but nothing special. The performances were pretty good, but it was just a story we've seen so many times before where these gods come to Earth and they want to get gain possession of the magic thingies that, that'll make them able to rule all the world and blah, blah, blah. We've seen it all before, so I don't really think it was the marketing that did in Shazam Fury of the Gods. I don't know if we're ever going to see a third movie. I think it's on hold right now. First one's terrific. Second one didn't make it. No one who's involved with that movie will have to worry about where to stash their trophies when all is said and done. All right, let's take a quick break and talk about Portillo's, and then we'll come back with some new reviews. All right, let's talk a little bit about Portillo's. They're known, of course, for their famous Chicago hot dogs with all the freshest and tastiest ingredients, right down to that famous poppy seed bun. Then we have to talk about the legendary chocolate cake. And everybody knows if you've ever been to Portillo's, but if you don't, you never put the cake in the fridge. You have to have it at room temperature. That's how it's delivered to you or handed to you in the restaurant. That's the way you have to taste it. And, of course, the menu has everything from the char-broiled burger to Italian beef, to some really good chopped salads. But, oh, that chocolate cake, I'm telling you. Now, there are locations throughout the Midwest and in Florida, California, and Arizona. But you can also ship Portillo's anywhere in the United States of America by ordering at portillos.com. That's P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S.com. P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S.com. All right, welcome back to the Richard Roper podcast. Uh, I want to talk about a couple of news series and movies that have either just been released or are about to come out. Uh, Lucky Hank on AMC. I gave it three and a half stars in my print review at sometimes.com. I love this series. Uh, Bob Odenkirk should be on the Mount Rushmore of AMC, right? Uh, Odenkirk had done a lot of stuff before Breaking Bad. He was a writer on SNL and he did a lot of TV stuff. He was known primarily as a comic guy. He's from the Chicago area originally and had had carved out quite a career but then along came uh, Saul Goodman who originally if you watch Breaking Bad was almost a purely comic character but then got more nuanced and had a great role in the series as it went on and then of course the incredible performances as Jimmy McGill slash Saul Goodman slash uh, Gene Takovich in uh in Better Call Saul and what I can tell you about Lucky Hank, guys, on AMC is it's just a testimony to Bob Odenkirk's versatility that we're about two or three scenes into this series and we're able to buy him as a completely different character, just as we were in the action flick, uh, Nobody, uh, which was so good. So in Lucky Hank, uh, which is uh, based on a book by Richard Russo, who's uh, books have been turned into all kinds of uh, fine films and streaming series through the years. Uh, he plays William Henry Hank Devereaux Jr. And he's an English professor and writer at a second tier college at the Pennsylvania Rust Belt. He had this great novel that was critically acclaimed when he was young and then hasn't done anything since. Writers love to write about writers. And it, and it makes for a great novel. But in this case, it makes for a really, really good television series. So, uh, Hank is this crabby, cynical, darkly funny, and honest to a fault guy. And he's really somebody who thinks that, you know, most of life is just being miserable, even though his life really isn't that bad. He's got a, a wonderful, supportive wife. 
Uh, he's got a daughter who's got some problems, but she's a good kid. And he's got a, he's got tenure at the university, but uh, he, he doesn't look at it that way. And I, I loved uh, the first few episodes I've seen of Lucky Hank. It's got a nice workplace comedy feel to it, like The Office or a lot of other shows where, you know, there's a whole cast of, you know, colorful characters who are thrust together for like 50 hours a week and either become friends or mortal enemies. Lucky Hank on AMC is terrific. I mentioned Yellow Jackets season two, which I also loved. And I had some trepidation going into this one, guys, because the first season of Yellow Jackets on Showtime kind of came out of nowhere. It didn't have a bunch of big stars. It had some terrific actors like Melanie Linsky, uh, who we've known for a long time. But it wasn't this giant thing. Like, for example, when Your Honor came to Showtime, speaking of Breaking Bad, it's like Brian Cranston playing a judge. You know, there are a lot of major stars in a lot of these limited series. And Yellow Jackets was more about the material. And if you haven't seen it, then you got to go back and watch season one. Season two will make no sense. It, it barely makes sense if you've seen season one, but it became a huge breakout hit and a, an awards contender. Uh, and all of a sudden, Showtime had you know this kind of small, eerie series that has bits of Lord of the Flies and a movie called Alive and the TV series Lost about it. You know, there's a there's a plane crash and then these girls who are on the soccer team and a few people associated with the team are stuck in the Canadian wilderness and their survival is dependent on everything from uh, killing and cooking wild animals to kinds of all kinds of supernatural elements and infighting. Uh, so it has two timelines, one in 1996, right after the crash, and then one in present day where we pick up the adult versions of the girls who survived uh, this horrific ordeal. So we know, we know there was a rescue after 18 months because we see some of them in, in present day. But we still don't know exactly what happened. And in season two, we learn more about what happened during the crash timeline and also in present day. And both timelines, I, the one in the 96 to me is more fascinating because there are more mysteries, more dark elements. But the the modern day stuff is really good as well. So I've seen the first six episodes of season two, and I'm I'm very happy to report that it's got it's got big potential. Uh, the, the thought now, the plan is for Yellow Jackets to run five seasons. So we're not going to get a lot of answers to the end of season five. There have been some great shows like Lost that it appeared at some point during the run of the series that the writers weren't quite sure what to do. I think in this case, and I, I'm not one of those people who says I, you know, who hated the ending of Lost. I think you know, they did what they could. And there were some pretty, pretty cool resolutions and then some that didn't quite resonate but i think with yellow jackets i think they have a plan like they had a plan on the sopranos like they had a plan on breaking bad from the start pretty much so season two of yellow jackets on showtime not so good news to report about a movie called a good person this is from writer director zach braff many many years after he gave his garden state which i really like kind of a cool quirky indie film and he's going for the same sort of major life lessons told in a melancholy but sometimes humorous way in a good person but i gotta say honestly this is so heavy-handed and so implausible i mean i love morgan freeman everybody loves morgan freeman but when he's doing a voiceover at this point in his career it's almost hard to take it seriously and in in this film he plays daniel who's a vietnam veteran has been through all kinds of trouble and um Come on the other side, a good person, if you will. And he has a model railway and he gives us voiceovers about how the model railway in that world can be controlled and every the trains are always on time and 
your dad's always there to pick you up from school and families are happy, but that's not the way it is in real life because it's much messier than that. And Florence Pugh plays Allison. She is responsible for an accident that causes the deaths of a couple of key characters. We pick up the action a few years later. She's addicted to painkillers and alcohol. Uh, Morgan Freeman was the father of, of one of the characters who was killed. Uh, he goes to meetings all the time. They strike up this very unlikely friendship. And then um, the daughter of the couple that was killed, uh, who's now a, a teenager named Ryan, she's played by Celeste O'Connor, the daughter of the two people who were killed becomes friends with Allison, who was responsible for their deaths, accident or no deaths. And we're supposed to believe that. And it just doesn't fly at any point. And there are a lot, of, you know, we're going to get some relapse sequences and we know we're going to get some recovery sequences and there's going to be probably at least one funeral scene. And there's, it's all done to the accompaniment of like kind of twee indie acoustic music. And it just feels artificial throughout. So unfortunately, no recommendation for a good person. Uh, I'm going to end on a high note though. One more recommendation for you guys. This is something I really enjoyed. It's called rabbit hole. Are you going to be all heroic and difficult, or are you going to be sensible and help us save the world? Data drives everything. You think you're shopping for socks, but they know who you're voting for. Why me? I can trust you. You're the one who taught me not to trust anybody. Corporate espionage is the dirty way to get rich. Are you accusing me of something? No one's ever succeeded in toppling a democracy as ours. But a country rife with anger and division is a job already half done. You must have absolute trust in one another and absolute trust in the plan. Uh, this is Kiefer Sutherland's return to television. And of course, we all remember made his TV bones. He'd already done, he'd done tons of movies and had been around for a long time. Of course, his father's Donald Sutherland, but 24 was the series, right? He ran on Fox for like, uh, God, forever. I mean, I think it was most of the early 2000s, all the way up to like 2013 or 2014. It was a big hit, 24, with the gimmick of the real-time clock and the split screens. And Jack Bauer was this guy who was always getting into shit. So uh, Rabbit Hole is kind of a cousin to that. It's a Paramount Plus series. Kiefer Sutherland plays a guy named John Weir, and he's um, he's a guy who kind of works as a freelance espionage expert he and his team of tech wizards and con artists can manipulate the news or even the stock market uh, for high-end clients and then they can make a lot of money off of that but then a gig goes sideways and all of a sudden our buddy john weir uh, is accused of murder maybe a double murder and he's on the lamb and everybody thinks he did it but he didn't do it and there are all kinds of twists and turns and he goes down yes the rabbit hole so a lot of similarities to 24 uh, one of the things i enjoyed about this series is the Kiefer sutherland is 56 now uh and he's still doing a lot of action stuff in this movie but he's playing a guy his own age so when he's running away from somebody or chasing somebody he'll, he'll sometimes have to kind of lean over and catch his breath uh when he gets in a fight with a, a gen zer who knows how to do spin kicks and stuff. He's got no chance. It's not going to be a fair fight unless he figures out a different way to win the fight. So he's a world-weary guy who's been through a lot. He's not a super-duper action hero. Uh, so it, in the first few episodes I've seen of 
rabbit hole if you dug 24 if you like those types of series and this is kind of comfort viewing it's a little bit batshit crazy we don't believe everything but it's a lot of fun to watch and really good supporting cast and front and center you got Kiefer sutherland trying to figure out who's out to get him and why you want to go down that rabbit hole for sure all right that's going to do it for this week's edition of the richard roper podcast thanks to everyone as always for listening and we'll talk soon